Hi, the Black Talk Media Project would like to invite you to become a member of the BTR Community subscription-based social media platform. BTR Community is a platform that was set up for the listening audience of Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black radio network online. For just $24 per year, your subscription gives you access to an interactive space to share information with like-minded people with your privacy guaranteed. Your subscription will go a long way to help us maintain and improve our current media platforms. It will also help provide a budget so that we can begin the task of establishing localized media centers and radio stations across the United States. The best way to show your support and appreciation for what we do here at Black Talk Radio is to subscribe. Help us to help you be informed. Join btrcommunity.com today. Views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff, porn, and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up. Good evening and welcome to this broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio. Today's date is October the 24th, 2018. And again, this is your broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio, which comes on live every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. This is a program that focuses on connecting the dots that lead to legalized slavery and human trafficking by way of the 13th Amendment. My name is Scotty Reed, of course. Uh, Max, I do not see him on the board. He may or may not be taking the night off. Um, we do have Otis uh, sitting in the cut, our abolitionist comrade. Do have um, some stories that I chose for you tonight to go over. One of the stories, this is some good news. I used to host a program or co-host a program and produce a program called Political Prisoner Radio, but was not able to maintain that program. And the purpose of that program was to focus on political prisoners being held by the United States and you know I'm just thankful that uh, some have gotten out but you know just the other day I saw that um, 
who was it, Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, the current UN ambassador, even though she's claiming that she's resigning. And I read an article where she was criticizing Cuba and talking about calling on the UN to condemn Cuba over its political prisoners and, and what have you. And the United States has pl political prisoners from the war on black and leftist organizations that was launched by J. Edgar Hoover, uh, the former director of the FBI. And we still have people in prison uh, behind, behind that. Now, the FBI was involved in the case of the MOVE organization in Philadelphia when they gave the Philadelphia police C4 to drop on the MOVE family compound, which ended up uh, destroying the entire African-American neighborhood up to 60 homes. But one of those uh, political prisoners, part of the MOVE organization, just got out of prison this week. So Mike Africa, the MOVE organization that was based in Philadelphia, was paroled from prison this week. Just one of among over 100 political prisoners held in the United States. His release comes almost one year after his wife, Debbie Sims Africa, was released. So we'll we'll look at some of the details of that. Um, you know, it's like the, their entire family has been united after 40 years because um, they do have a son, uh, Mike Jr. And it's just good to see the photographs of that family back together again. Um, now, we are just weeks away from the midterm elections um, that are happening all across the United States and some states early voting. I, I believe in most states early voting has already started. But I will not just be watching the election results pertaining to constitutional amendments and other issues in my state. I will also be paying attention to Colorado as we want to keep reminding you that on the ballot in Colorado is an amendment A. And what that amendment will do is hopefully make Colorado one of the first states among other states that have that language in their state constitutions that mirror the exception clause of the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution that allows for slavery as punishment for crime. We're hoping that they are able to remove that clause if Amendment A passes and in this upcoming election. Again, I, I'm not sure, but early voting may have started already in Colorado. So if you're in Colorado, and I know we do have listeners in Colorado, you want to vote yes on Amendment A. And we'll share um, some details from that story. Here's a terrible story. Um, it kind of hit home with me um, because it's happened to at least two of my cousins, but they weren't um, sent to prison. Luckily, uh, they were able to beat the charges and we were able to get them out of prison. But Sitwatu Salamara is a 26-year-old mother and community organizer. And she has been sentenced, to, I think it's two years, we'll look at the details, to prison after a jury found her guilty of charges stemming from her defending herself and her family from an attacker with her licensed firearm that was unloaded. And even though no one was shot or injured, this jury found her guilty. Uh, I think the exact charge, and we'll get to the details, the exact uh, charge is uh, assault with a deadly weapon. 
uh, something to that effect. And, you know, that happened to my cousin who also lives in Detroit. Shout out to Sean and my favorite aunt, Drusilla, um, who are up that way. And the same thing happened to him. And I'll get, you know, share that story with you later. Um, don't hold your breath. As I stated uh, on Twitter today, waiting on the NRA to advocate for her. Um, but why am I bringing up this story? Well, obviously, since she's going into prison, slavery is appropriate to bring up on this program. But also the issue of jury nullification. Okay, you know, I've heard people over the past few days or actually over the past week or so talking about how they don't vote and they don't participate because it don't matter and, and all this and that. All right, don't vote. But guess what? You're probably not even getting on the juries, are you? You're not getting on the jury. And jury nullification is something that I have been looking at for a number of years. Um, you know, and I, I I have only been called to jury duty once. And it was in a civil case. And But I would never turn down the opportunity to sit on the jury uh, on cases that are just really unjust but the pe I, I just don't understand how these people found this woman guilty of assault with a deadly weapon so we'll get into the details of that later but anyway in inmates are facing murder charges for a fatal uprising that occurred at James T. Vaughn Correctional uh, Center um, that is located in Delaware and now this uprising happened a couple of years ago but the uh, prison slaves are on, on trial right now. And one of them is representing himself. Um, and I think it's sort of like, you know, he's doing it with one of the other defendants attorney, but he brought up some very good questions and it just, and he attacked the thoroughness and credibility of the state police investigation into the riot. Um, um, yesterday, no, yeah, today's Wednesday. So yesterday, you know, while, while he was in court. And this was all related to the killing of this correctional officer uh, who got shanked or, or something during the uprising. Now, uh, the uprising was the result of most uprisings that you hear about in prisons. And, you know, James T. Vaughn Correctional Center is also one of the prisons that participated in the prison strike. And... After they also, during that particular strike, had put out a list of demands. And afterwards, prisoners came with more demands. And they came up with a list of 22 requests addressing various problems at the facility, which caused the uprising in the first place. I mean, if you treat people like animals, what do you expect? Okay. So when you have people in inhumane conditions, then uh, don't be surprised when they act less than humane or they rise up against those conditions. Okay, so we'll get into that that story um, as well. That's actually two stories, but they're connected. Um, now, this is uh, a case that I came across today. It's kind of related to the Pennsylvania. Um, case where the abolitionist law center is is suing the state of Pennsylvania. I think some other prisoners are or other groups are filing a lawsuit as well, where they're going to take all the communications um, 
and make them digital and hire a private um, entity to like, for example, they're not going to give them letters and what have you. And if you want to communicate, you got to go through this third party, um, this private uh, company. Uh, if you send them letters, they're not going to get the letters. They're going to take the letters, give it to the company. The company's going to transcribe the letters and put them on um on the internet basically um, or or put them on their servers and then the only way that the prisoners can access their letters and other communications is by purchasing an iPad or you know whatever it, whatever kind of electronic um, uh, device to access this now their attorneys are saying hey this violates attorney client privilege and I came across a, a similar case today and defense attorneys are alleging that prosecutors, and we're talking federal prosecutors, engaged in widespread practice of obtaining recordings of attorney-client phone calls in violation of their client's constitutional rights and resulted in one woman being released early from prison. Now, uh, as I just stated, this, the story raises the same concerns of prisoners in Pennsylvania over attorney-client con confidential Communication. So, I want to take a look at at that case. Uh, here, here's a case that I was glad to see, because um, again, you know, people want to ask me questions. Uh, when has voting ever changed anything? Well, here, here's a case right here. Uh, up to four thousand California inmates serving life sentences for nonviolent convictions under the three strikes laws will have a chance at parole following the state's decision to let stand a judge's ruling, meaning they're no longer going to oppose the judge's ruling, saying that those prisoners are eligible for freedom under a voter-approved law. So this isn't something that the state of California, the politicians, and the governor uh, put in place or passed in the law. This was a voter uh, initiative that was that they voted on and passed and it basically guts the three strikes laws of California for up to 4,000 nonviolent inmates uh, can be affected so you want to anybody ask you you know and there's plenty of other examples of voting changing something or bringing some change point to these 4,000 California inmates serving life sentences who will now be eligible for parole all thanks to the people who got the uh, ballot initiative uh, on the on the um, before the voters, and then the voters who voted to approve approve this uh, new law that was put on by voters, not by lawmakers. All right, so getting to some of the regular segments, tonight's writer of the Underground Railroad is Valentino Dixon, who spent 26 years in prison after being found guilty of murder, which he did not commit. Now, one of the students who worked on his case said she will never look at prisoners the same because of, of this case. So I guess she's saying, and we'll get to the details, I guess she's saying that, hey, I'm not going to look at everybody in prison as all being guilty of the things that they were duly convicted of. Because um, I've now worked on this case and I see that they sent an innocent man to prison for a murder he didn't convict, uh, commit and he lost 26 years of his life in prison. So, um, yeah. 
our abolitionists and profile tonight, I'm not sure if we ever covered this one. Sometimes we we revisit some of the abolitionists because sometimes it's kind of hard to uncover information about new ones. Um, but our abolitionist in profile tonight is Richard Allen. He was born February the 14th, 1760, passed away or transitioned on March the 26th, 1831. So this is like 20-something years before the Civil War. Uh, he was one of the founders of the Free African Society, a non-denominational a mutual aid society, religious-based, that assisted runaway victims of slavery and free black migrants to the city of Philadelphia. He also um, uh, created the African Methodist Episcopalian uh, Church, one of the first uh, black churches in the United States after they broke away. So we'll 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 get to those uh, details later. All right, so let me go ahead and give out the telephone number. If you have any questions or comments for me tonight, just go ahead and give us a call at 704-802-5056, 704-802-5056, and we will get your comments on air. You can hit star star to unmute yourself. Um, you can also connect with us via uberconference.com slash Radio. Network. All right, so let's begin. So we're going to start it off with some good news about Mike Africa being released after 40 years in prison. Um, I actually had an article from Telesur English that I was going to share, uh, but Max shared this link um, from theguardian.com. Um because sometimes I just don't like how people write stuff, man. You you have to have to vet stuff, you know. Um, but they saying member of the radical Philadelphia-based group Move Nine. Well, actually, it wasn't Move Nine is the name of the political prisoners. The name of the organization is simply Move. Um, but anyway, uh, he was sentenced. They're saying that they were sentenced after a violent confrontation with police in 1978 and he was reunited with his wife Debbie Africa and son Mike Jr. So I, I'm I'm going to read from this but I'm already skeptical of how they framing this um, because you know I've interviewed members of the Move 9. Um, actually one of them was at the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March in Washington D.C. Uh, was that last year or, or two years ago? I lose track of time. Anyway let me just start reading. Mike Africa Sr. has become the second member of the Philadelphia-based group of black radicals. I mean, why they got to be radical? All right. You, you know, known as the Move 9 to be released from prison. More than 40 years after they were arrested for the death of a police officer in one of the most dramatic shootouts of the black liberation era. Now, I, don't, I wouldn't call it a shootout if only the police is doing the shooting, <laughs> okay? Because these people was in the basement. They were in the basement and they didn't even have any working firearms in the house. And, uh, you know, again, I've covered this case and I know, you know, a little thing about the case. And, you know, this is BS, man. It wasn't no shootout. For a shootout to happen, they would have had to been shooting back at the police. That never happened. 
Mike Africa was paroled from the SCI Phoenix Prison in Pennsylvania on Tuesday morning to be re reunited with his wife, Debbie Africa, who was also let out on parole in June, having been arrested alongside him at the climax of a police siege in 1978. They were joined by their son, Mike Africa, until Tuesday had never spent time with both parents in the same room. I'm ecstatic coming from where I was just a couple of hours ago, Mike Sr. told The Guardian, speaking from his son's house outside Philadelphia. I wasn't convinced in my mind that this would happen until I walked out the prison gates. He said it was amazing to be reunited with his wife, who was held in a separate women's prison for 40 years. I missed her and I loved her. She's been my girl since we were kids. That's never wavered at all. Debbie Africa said that she was overwhelmed to have her family back. Mike Africa Sr.'s release marks a big step in the struggle of black, quote-unquote, militants who are still behind bars. Why not just call them political prisoners? See, that, that's what I'm saying, man. I, I just, this is why I kind of stay away from corporate media. Um, but anyway... Uh, who are still behind bars decades after they were arrested for police killings and other violent acts in the late 1960s and 1970s. The Guardian highlighted their plight in July. What other violent acts are they talking about? I don't know. Maybe I'm not as informed as I think I am after talking to people who are advocates on, you know, for the move now. What are they talking about? 18 individuals, including two move women, Janine Phillips Africa and Janet Holloway Africa, remain in prison. Many of them insist they are innocent of the charges brought against them. In the case of the move nine, they were convicted collectively of the death of a police officer, James Ramp, in the 1978 siege of their group home in Philadelphia, even though only one shot and killed them. See, this is bullshit. This is why we had to vet articles. And, and, and check the sources because none of them shot him. He was shot by other cops. It was friendly fire. They had snipers on the buildings across the street and forensics show that this guy was shot from by somebody from above in the back of his head from an upward angle or a downward angle I should say. They were all in the basement, held up in the basement. So, you know, I'm done with this. I'm done with the Guardian because it's a bunch of propaganda bullshit, man. Anyway, it's good to see these political prisoners uh, being released. Uh, there's been a number of them um, who have spent decades in prison uh, who are finally getting out um, and... It's not because of any big organizations have been advocating for them. It's not like the black press has been highlighting their stories and, you know, uh, uh, every year. No, no, they don't. So basically, it's just, you know, run its course. And they've been denied parole for years ever since they became eligible for parole, even though they have stellar, what you call stellar records, meaning no infractions in prisons. In some cases, even the prison officials were asking for them to be released 
in, in cases where parole had been denied. So, yes, America, I mean, the United States has political prisoners. Uh, Nikki Haley should say something about that. All right, so let me move on. Um, but if anybody has any thoughts of that, uh, let me see. Deconstructing, deconstructioning. I, I don't know what you mean, Otis. Do you want to explain what you mean, deconstructioning? It has merit. Scotty, I was just saying, you actually doing a good job of deconstructing the falsehoods in that article. You got a little frustrated. But I, I saw some merit in that because too many people pick them up and have no idea to go back and say what part of this is wrong. I thought I thought it was good that you were tearing it apart. Yeah, yeah, you're right, Otis. Um, but, it, you know, he's, he's out. Y'all got the crust of the story. Um, again, you know, we have uh, reported on the Move 9 on this network for a number of years. So I just want to say welcome to freedom. Um, Mike Africa Sr., um, it's just so good to see that family back together, the smiles on their faces and, and what have you. And we had to keep advocating for our political prisoners, you know, as as, you know, members of the political prisoner advocacy community would say, free them all. So but yeah, thanks. Thanks for that, Otis. Yeah, I, I did get frustrated, man, because I mean, I know the details of the case. And this is just a bunch of garbage, man. It's a bunch of garbage. So anyway, uh, let me move on. Uh, let me see. Now, this is a story that kind that really kind of, uh, I shouldn't say really bothers me because most of the stories we report bothers me. But this happened to one of my cousins in, in, in Detroit. Um let me see. Why am I not getting to the article all of a sudden? Oh, man. Give me just a moment. All right. Let me click on this link. Read story. All right. So in the Detroit Free Press, Nancy Kafer uh, published an opinion piece. And she's asking the question, does this mother belong in prison? Let me read a little bit of the article. Again, this has happened to, to two of my cousins um, where they attempted to put them in prison behind uh, BS gun charges with legally owned firearms. Uh, so anyway, one of them was in Maryland and my other cousin was in Detroit, in Michigan. Um, it's hard to find anyone who thinks Sawatu Salama Ra belongs in prison. Last year, Ra, 26, waved an unloaded gun at an acquaintance whom Ra's mother, Rhonda Anderson, says became belligerent and violent at Anderson's Detroit home, using her car to hit a parked car in which Ra's toddler daughter, Zala, was playing. No one was hurt. No shots were fired. Ra, a Detroit activist and community organizer with no previous criminal record, is a legal gun owner with a concealed carry permit who says she was afraid that the acquaintance would harm her daughter, her mother, or herself. But a jury believed that Ra acted in anger, not in self-defense, and found her guilty of felonious or what is it? Yeah, felonious assault. A Wayne County Circuit Court judge believed that the offense merited probation, 
not imprisonment, sentencing the then pregnant Rod to two years probation for the felonious assault. But because Rod was also charged with using a firearm in commission of a felony, a charge added after she refused to plead guilty to assault, opting instead for a jury trial, she's serving a two-year mandatory sentence at Women's Huron Valley Correctional Facility, a term that began this spring when, while Ra was pregnant. County prosecutors have twice agreed that Ra isn't a danger to the community. When Ra's attorney asked that she remain free on bond until after the birth of her son, a pregnancy her doctors documented as high risk, County prosecutors agreed endorsing the deal that would have kept Rod out of prison until 45 days after delivery. And last week when Rod's attorney asked that she be freed on bond pending appeal of her conviction, county prosecutors likewise didn't object. But in both instances, Wayne County Circuit Court judges chose to keep the 26-year-old Detroiter behind bars. So she gave birth while incarcerated transported to a hospital to deliver son Zakia, with whom she spent just 24 hours before relinquishing him to prison staff to deliver to her husband. And she is still there. It is hard to understand how any of this achieves justice. So um, it goes on to cite some other issues about, um, you know, women, uh, pregnant women in prison and, um, and it just, you know, it's a pretty long article. Uh, well, it's not that long, but I'm not going to read it all on air. So I don't see that she did anything wrong. And this is why it's important that people are conscious, even if you don't vote, register to vote or get your driver's license. However, they pick people in your state to be sit on the jury. Because we certainly find a lot of us sitting behind defense uh, tables or defendant tables, okay, and not enough of us sitting behind, on in that jury box. Now I do understand, and I acknowledge that in many different places there's a concerted effort to disqualify black jurors. That that's 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 a given. You know that's undeniable. We've seen it time and time again. There was it came up here as well in North Carolina in some cases concerning the death penalty and, and how they were excluding black juries from death penalty cases, especially if the defendant was black. And so, you know, that happens. But guess what? If you don't put yourself to, in a position to even be on a jury, then you know you ain't going to get on the jury. So do these things so that we can try to help people stay out of prison slavery that don't belong in prison slavery and nobody belongs in prison slavery but some people do need correction and unfortunately we don't have a whole lot of correctional facilities the name means nothing if there's no rehabilitative programs and no services to help these people with their issues it's just a name there's no rehabilitation going on. There's no correction going on. But some people do need to be taken out of the community. All right. And um, but we have we have to do everything we can, use every tool at our disposal 
to minimize the impact of slavery on our communities. I don't know what the makeup of this jury looks like, but I just could not. I, I, if I was on this jury, no way I would have found this woman guilty. And then you saying, oh, she did it out of anger. Well, if you are vi being belligerent with me, getting violent with me, crashing your car into my car with my toddler child in the car, what? I'm going to be happy about that? Of course, I'm going to be angry. Now, I might I might have went as far as to shot the person. I'm just telling you, that's just how I am. If I felt my life was in intimate danger, you using, you know, your vehicle as a weapon, oh, you're going to get shot by me. But she ain't even shoot the woman. Matter of fact, the gun wasn't even loaded. She just waved the gun to let the, to let the person know. I don't know if it was a male or a female to let the person know I'm armed so you might want to slow your roll. But but let me get let me let me say this as a sidebar. I don't know the purpose of carrying around an unloaded weapon. I just really don't. Okay? And I've been told or taught by my uncles, you don't pull your weapon unless you're ready to use it. That's the only time you pull your weapon. But, you know, I, I'm not going to criticize her on that. There's a friend or acquaintance. You know, some people just can't bring themselves to take somebody else's life, even to save their own life or what have you. But, you know, I just don't see how this woman could have been found guilty. And then again, these laws, these all these enhancements that were put on the books, Oh, you committed a felony while having a gun. That's extra time for you. None of this stuff serves justice. It serves to keep the prison plantation full. That's all it serves. So, this happened to my cousin in Detroit. And I don't know, you can call it, I don't know what to call it. But my family seems to be blessed. But anyway, my cousin had a next door neighbor. I think I think he still has her as a neighbor. Well, I think Sean moved out of that house. Anyway, he's living in the house that his mother had bought, but moved out when she got remarried and, and moved somewhere else. So Sean's staying at the house by itself. That's my cousin's name, first cousin. The woman next door water gets shut off and, and you know, she she got some other people in the house with her, some some teenagers or what have you. And she asked, can, can, you know, I hook up my um, hose to your water so we can get some water into the, in the house until I can get uh, my water turned back on. So Sean let her do it. But then a month passed. Then two months passed. And Sean was like, wait a minute, man. You know, I can't keep paying my water bill and your water. You making my water bill go up. So... He, uh, he turned the water off. He unhooked her hose to his house and, you know, told her, you know, you can't use it no more. You know, I can't afford this. So anyway, she going to get belligerent and violent with him, parking in his driveway. He told her to move his vehicle. She out there in the yard getting all belligerent and talking about how she going to whoop his you-know-what or get somebody to jump on him. I don't remember all the details. It happened a couple of years ago. And 
Sean went and got his rifle and was like, you need to get out my yard. Now, Sean never pointed the rifle at her, but he let her know I'm armed. You want to threaten me, you better get up out my, off my property. The woman going to call the police and say that Sean pointed the weapon at her. I think he, I don't know if he had a, a, a AK-47 or what, what Sean had. You know, it wasn't no automatic weapon, though. It was legal. So anyway, he gets arrested and charged with the same thing this woman got charged with. Then he had a public defender who tried to get him to plead out. And Sean was like, I'm not pleading guilty to something I didn't do. This woman's on my property threatening me. And all I did was let her know I'm armed so you might want to leave my property and stop threatening me. And they, and they tried to get a conviction. And, you know, he just wouldn't plead guilty to it. And eventually, um, the charges got dismissed. I don't know who my aunt got in contact with, but I know they had some help. All right. Same thing happened to another one of my first cousins in Maryland. He was in the Air Force at the time. Case of road rage. This dude was behind him, you know, uh, um, just blowing his horn and acting crazy and, and what have you. And then got out his vehicle like he was going to run up on my cousin, Tony. Tony has a firearm in his car now. This is in the state of Maryland. He's also was a captain in the Air Force at the time. And all Tony did was make his gun seen. He didn't point it at the dude and let him know, you better back, you, you, you better go back and get back in your car. <laughs> you know, you acting like you want to do something to me. You about to get something done to you. And so all he did was, was show him, hey, I'm armed. You might want to step back. Same thing. They tried to charge him. And he spent like, he spent like over, I know it was over six months in jail up there in Maryland. But eventually, yeah, he actually went to trial. And the jury wouldn't convict him. The jury would not convict him. He and the judge even begged the jury, can't you just give me a conviction on something? Can, can you just give me something? That, and that's highly unusual for a judge to be begging a jury to convict somebody. That's not the judge's job. Okay? That's what the prosecutor does in his final statements. So they did go back and come back and convict him on one charge but they remain deadlocked on the other charges. And through the appeals process, they were able to get the conviction overturned. Now my cousin's back home here in North Carolina. All right, so being on juries is very important, okay? Because they, they railroad people all the time. But also what this speaks to me is about, you know, I, I don't want to say it's an element in the black community, but there are those who target the black community to get us on board with these strict gun laws and gun control and all this and that, okay? They want to leave you defenseless and what have you. But when when whenever there are these cases, because the NRA, and my cousin Tony was a member of the NRA, they never helped him. 
Um, I don't think my cousin in Detroit even tried to reach out to the NRA. I know Sean didn't, and I know his mother didn't. But when have you ever heard of these type of cases of a black person legally owning firearms, being brought up on these dubious charges? When has the NRA ever advocated for them? They don't. So, you know, just because they got some black person named Colin Knorr doing a YouTube channel for the NRA, using him, you know, uh, as a black face, as if they ain't racist. You know, no, don't fall for it. You never hear them come to the defense or the aid of black gun owners when they find themselves in these situations. So I hope that this woman gets out. Um, The case is under appeal. Um, but she she has uh, been sentenced to two years of prison slavery there in the state of Michigan. And, you know, I kind of think that she's being targeted, that those judges are using her background as a community activist and holding that against her. Who who knows? I can't say that for certain, but it's something that that entered into my mind that, you know, because she's been vocal in the community and they probably making an example out of her. So anyway, let me move on. Uh, let me see what time it is. We got uh, time for some more uh, stories. Okay. Uh, let me check the board. We don't have any questions or comments. Again, if you're having questions or comments, give us a call 704-802. 5056, that's 704-802-5056. Uh, let me open up something. Uh, Tag sent me some abolitionist movement um, that was, excuse me, some music that was uh, sent to him by some members of the Bronx 120. We actually interviewed one of the young men. I can't remember his name uh, right now, but we will uh, take a listen uh, to that to that track. Um, I do plan on uploading it to the station. What's the name of this track? Um, I'm going to play it at the top of the hour. Behind the Wall is the name of the track. All right, so uh, let me move on to the next story. Let me see. The next story is concerning this trial that's taking place in Delaware uh, right now where these prisoners have been charged for the killing of a a prison guard um, slave plantation overseer. And they are doing a good job in representing themselves. But again, you know, uh, you could be proven innocent and the jury will still find you guilty. Okay, it just depends. Depends on who's on that jury. So let me read this uh, from DelawareOnline.com. Inmates facing murder charges for the fatal uprising at James T. Vaughn Correctional Center attacked the thoroughness and credibility of the state police investigation into the riot. This happened yesterday, Um, not the riot. Um, It was the first full day of trial testimony for four men charged with murder, riot, conspiracy, kidnapping, and assault for the February 2017 hostage standoff in Smyrna, I think that's how you pronounce it, and the prosecutors finished showing hundreds of crime scene photos that depicted a myriad of physical evidence, bloody and burnt clothes, knit masks, gloves and makeshift weapons like shanks, 
mop ringers, and fire extinguishers, the defendants questioned why investigators sent fewer than two dozen of those items for DNA testing. Would you agree that testing those items had the possibility of shedding light on this investigation, meaning it could shed light on people who could be possible suspects defended Jerome Ayers as state police detective Corporal Roger Cresto on Tuesday. Cresto testified that it was his responsibility to catalog hundreds of items of evidence from Building C where the riot occurred. Ayers is one of two defendants representing themselves in the trial. He used his cross-examination of Cresto to question the impartiality of detectives' analysis. He seized upon an evidence report detailing that most items gathered from the jail, including potential murder weapons like shanks, were not tested for DNA evidence. Cresto said investigators prioritize items conducive to the injuries to correctional officer Lieutenant Stephen Floyd, who was killed by multiple blunt force traumas and stab wounds during the standoff. You just left five shanks and bloody gloves off the list, Ayers asked. Cresto did not attempt to explain why. Ayers' line of questioning parallels his opening statements which were made Monday, in which he accused prosecutors of picking and choosing who the bad guys are and bolstering their case by cutting deals with dishonest inmates, getting them jailhouse snitches. Um, Deputy Attorney General Nicole Warner had previously said Ayers and his co-defendant Derek Forney were responsible for wielding mock ringers and shanks in the initial assault on officers that began the 18-hour hostage standoff. Ben Guilford, the attorney representing Forney, tried to get Cresto to explain how detectives and prosecutors decided which weapons and clothes discovered in the ransack prison wing warranted DNA testing and which didn't. He asked Cresto to describe what was going through his mind when they were deciding what would be tested, if he had documented why some items were tested and some were not, and if he remembered any statements made in the decision-making meeting. Cresto described it as a collaborative process with detectives and prosecutors, but could not offer specific answers to Guilford's question. So, let me, uh, that just, I don't know, I could be wrong, it could be nothing, but it seems like to me the detectives supposed to do their jobs uh, autonomously without working with the prosecutors. It's my understanding that the police are supposed to investigate, gather evidence, and then present the case to the prosecutor who then makes a a, a decision on whether or not they're going to prosecute the case based on the evidence. That's not what I'm hearing here. I'm hurt. I'm hearing here from Cresto's testimony that, oh, we worked with the prosecutors to cherry pick, you know, what was going to be used and what wasn't, or what was going to be tested and what wasn't going to be tested. Deputy Attorney General John Downs quizzed Cresto saying water that flooded the building during the standoff could have, that's key right there, could have damaged potential DNA evidence. He also elicited from Cresto statements about how DNA testing costs the state money. All right, so 
that right there says you don't know if the DNA evidence was damaged or not. You just saying it could have been damaged. And then y'all talking about how much it costs to do the testing. And that insinuates that you didn't want to spend a whole lot of money doing a thorough investigation. Seems like to me um, that they are targeting these two individuals for some reason. Gifford then noted the high profile of the investigation and asked Cresto if police decided not to order testing for some items in this case because of costs. Um, Cresto said cost was not a factor in the bond inquiry. So why did the prosecutor, who was working with you, solicit ask a question to solicit an answer on about the issue of cost or how much it costs? See, they, they, right there, that suspect, reasonable doubt right there, already been raised. Uh, let me see, is there anything else? Um, yeah, so this kind of this kind of underlies my theory that they are targeting these individuals for a reason. So they're saying that they are the shot callers and were the lead organizers along with the co-defendant Dwayne Steets. These are the ones who, who did the uprising in the prison, which they then issued a list of demands about the terrible con inhumane conditions they were being forced to live under ask for some rehabilitation. Now, now, that's just crazy. It's the prisoners that's demanding rehabilitation. The state ain't concerned about public safety whatsoever. They just want to cage individuals. Because if they, knowing that these individuals are going to get out one day, if they ain't in there for life in prison, then you might want to rehabilitate them and give them the tools they need to come out and be productive members of society and get their feet, you know, under them. And but no, that's not what's happening. And it's just, it's just, it's just worth noting that in all these cases, all these strikes, it's prisoners who are demanding rehabilitation programs educational programs, medical and psychiatric programs. All of this stuff is being denied them. So that, that should tell you the correction system is a sham because there's no correction going on. So want to keep an eye on, on this case, um, but I do want to talk about some of the demands because after this, um, after this initial riot that occurred in two, or I should say uprising that occurred in 2017, um, other prisoners built upon um, those demands or requests, if you want to call it that. So let's just go over some of the things they're asking for. Um, so these are some of the things they asked for after the uprising. Uh, prisoners at Delaware's James T. Vaughn Correctional Center wrote an open letter to the warden and Department of Correction, which includes a list of 22 requests addressing various problems at the facility. The list expands upon demands made in February when men in the housing unit, Building C, launched an uprising that lasted over 18 hours in which hostages were taken and one corrections officer was killed. Those demands include better education and rehabilitation programs, more respectful and less abusive staff, 
and status sheets, which accurately detailed sentences. Prisoners also expressed concern over the tough-on-crime rhetoric that accompanied Donald Trump's ascendance to the presidency and what it could mean for conditions at their prison. The letter was written by a prisoner at Vaughn who will remain anonymous over concerns of retaliation. What happened in C-Building was both tragic and inevitable. The letter begins, Only those who were blind or naive can claim that they did not see the incident coming. It was not sparked by any one event, but by a series of events that with time began to slowly boil over. Prisoners had to take matters into their own hands after attempts at diplomacy were ignored and pleas for help fell on deaf ears, the letter contends. No one wants for this type of incident to happen again. No one wanted this to happen in the first place. We all have a duty and a moral obligation to ensure that what occurred never occurs again. To do that, we must first realistically address the issues that brought us to this point. Acknowledging that when we are incarcerated, we lose certain civil rights, the letter argues. What we do not lose and what should not be taken away from us are our human rights. Amen to that, brother. Under no circumstances should we be treated as less than human beings, nor should we be expected to settle for such treatment. We do not want the keys to the prison, the letter concludes. What we want is fairness, impartiality, transparency, and humane treatment. It is followed by a list of 22, the letter that is, is followed by a list of 22 requests they say will help prison officials in your goal of making this a safer, more secure, and more humane prison. Now, so I'll say this. How many different prisons have we heard the same demands from across the United States that were especially highlighted during the... uh, a recent prison strike, national, I should say international prison strike that uh, started on, I think it was August the 26th of this year and ended on September the 9th with some prisoners continuing uh, to protest and engage in hunger strikes. Um, The reason I call it international is because prisoners in other countries joined in solidarity in the strike and prisoners in private prisons, immigration detention facilities also expressed their solidarity and what. So this is a, this was an international strike, and all of them were simply asking for the same things: rehabilitative educational programs and to treat us like we're human beings. Is that too much to ask? And that's that's kind of why I, see, I, I, I chose the title of tonight's broadcast that I did. Legalized slavery makes U.S. society uncivilized and barbaric. The state of these prisons is the state of this country or this nation. How you treat them is a reflection of who you are as a society. You are uncivilized and you're barbaric. I don't see these men saying, oh, we just a bunch of innocent people up in here. Uh, You know, 
uh, we're all wrongfully convicted. No, that's not what they saying. They saying that we should be given rehabilitative program. That's what we were sold. The public was sold on quote unquote correctional institutions because it's supposed to rehabilitate people. But it's the prisoners who's who's calling for those programs. And I don't think I should have to explain why human beings should be treated with the dignity that humans should be treated with. The United States is a signatory to the 19, I think it's 1948, uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which they are in violation of by way of the 13th Amendment and the fact that they still practice in slavery. But it talks about even the human rights of people in this position. This is a barbaric society and it's very uncivilized that we live in. And then you wonder why people get out and then they real offend or whatnot. You're subjecting them to some of the most brutal and harshest conditions. In other words, you treat people like animals, then they're going to take on the characteristics of animals. You treat people with human decency, chances are you'll get the same thing in, in return. It just makes no sense. It's just unjustifiable for this to be going on. So, I hope these men are found innocent because it sounds like a bunch of poppycock to me. Uh, they don't really have any evidence against them. They don't know who killed the plantation overseer, prison guard. They don't know who killed them, so we just going to pin it on some of these organizers uh, who want to organize against prison slavery. Yeah, we, we, we'll take care of y'all. We'll get some more time on you. Instead of saying, you know what? Y'all got some legitimate demands. Shouldn't no guards be mistreating y'all. Um, we should be providing y'all with rehabilitative and educational programs. You're right. Uh, prisoners with mental health condition, uh, um, you know, problems should be given access to mental health treatment. No, that's, that's not what, that's not what, these prison officials are doing. That's not what the politicians are doing. That's not as a society of what we're doing. And very few of us, very, very few of us even give a darn about what happens to these men and women behind prison. Certainly no rehabilitation going on. I can tell you that. All right. So, we're at the top of the hour. I'm going to take a station identification break and uh, uh, play this music track that Tag sent me there. He seemed to be excited about, so I like hip-hop, and, you know, so I, I hope it's as good as he said it is. I haven't had a chance to screen it, but you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. This program broadcasts live every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. Stay tuned.
faces from my words behind the wall. I swear me and all my niggas gonna fall. Mama said I gotta stand tall. If I don't stand for something, I'ma fall. I know that I gotta get my all. Cause today ain't gonna promise tomorrow. Haters wanna see me in the mall. So every day you know I'm praying to the Lord. April 26, the fest came and it hurts. In the courtroom, saw my mama go berserk. Never thought I'd see free flocker on a shirt. Death penalty, charged with murder in the first. A nigga home and they think I'm on. When I'm on the road on camera phones, groupies give me dumb. All these niggas in my face, acting like we really broke. Me and Gritty's locked in a box like some Cheerios. This is for my ones behind the wall. I swear me and all my niggas gonna fall. Mama said I gotta stand tall. If I don't stand for something, I'ma fall. I know that I gotta get my all. Cause today ain't gonna promise tomorrow. Haters wanna see me in the mall. So every day you know I'm praying to the Lord. Lord, Father God, please forgive my sins. I know I had outs and ends. Couple losses, couple wins. Even lost a couple friends. Some got 20, some got 10. Some I never see again. Lord, be bring my niggas back. I swear they gon' be good fathers. They wanna see their sons and daughters. But can't cut their face in charges. It's hard to move more cautious. Youngins lost up in the sauces. Want me be my bands and pauses. But don't know what this like causes. Causes. This is for my ones behind the wall. I swear me and all my niggas gonna fall. Mama said I gotta stand tall. If I don't stand for something, I'ma fall. I know that I gotta get my all. Cause today ain't gonna promise tomorrow. Haters wanna see me in the mob. So every day you know I'm praying to the Lord. We all my black men doing time. I know it's hard, not me. Ignore all the haters, but ayo, it get greater later. Where were all the Christians when we started dropping bombs? Where was Luke, Matthew? 
Matthew, Mark, and John. They say pray to Christ, but act nothing like him. As they lead the sheep to slaughter, we get crucified just like them. Scripture says the meek shall inherit the earth. But after global warming, tell me what that shit worth. Not the price of dirt, he got me for my shirt. The emperor has no clothes and Connie dropped the skirt. She can get it in the rear, we should have known that it was near. Osama's just a tool they use to promote their brand of fear. Extra, extra, read all about it. This the daily news for the streets post crowded. Some say I get in too deep when I speak about it. You reap what your soul, I doubt it. And these New York Times listening to the village voice. Killers and gangbangers killing, a killer's choice. I build the stand, the man I am true. Read about me in the Amsterdam news. And this white man's world. I got a secret, everybody come to listen. They took the money out of schools and they got rich building prisons. Atlanta children missing, one man set for lynching. The murder still continue, but no one can't list them. What's the price of black when white is valued higher? Who's the last to get the job, the first to get the fire? No one gets the blame, truth is just the truth. Most don't have a future, cause most don't know their roots. But they know flavored hoops and they think that shit is cute. Like Beyonce in a G-string and Jay-Z in a suit. The Pop Piper with a flute, mommy getting zooped. The children's in the street and the dealer's about to shoot. The cycle goes around like the cycle going round. Snatching up our babies like the fruit from off the ground. Who tends the garden? Who watches over sheep? The priest is here to raise our souls. That's just when we sleep. I tell confessions to a beast. They say God is like the thief who comes in the darkest night to quickly snatch a peep. If I'm my brother's keeper, who's my sister's keep? Some nigga named Sugar Bear with diamonds in his teeth. Extra, extra, read all about it. This the daily news for the streets post crowded. Some say I get in too deep when I speak about it. You reap what your soul, I doubt it. And these New York Times listening to the village voice. Stillers and gangbangers killing a killer's choice. I build the stand, the man I am true. Read about me in the Amsterdam news. And this white man's I try to do the right thing in my life like Mookie. But I'm still a public enemy, so they set me up like Tukey. We should all stand tall like Jamal in a pen. So I call for the fall of Babylon with the pen. You see everything on time like a man they've been. Why they call me black if that's not the color of my skin? And why they call you white if we all born in sin? That sound like the gin, out the tent men. The devil wears a suit, but I can see it in his grin. If Jesus is the word, and the word is on the cross. And the cross is in the club, why so many people lost? Two towers down, everybody like moss. All patriotic, but what's the final cost? What's the final cost? What's the final cost? Extra, extra, read all about it. This the daily news for the streets post crowded. Some say I get in too deep when I speak about it. You reap what your soul, I doubt it. And these New York Times listening to the village voice. Killers and gangbangers killing. A killer's choice, I build the stand. The man I am true. Read about me in the Amsterdam News. In this white man's world. You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. I'm not a Wu-Tanga, and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Scotty Reed sitting in on this mic from behind the enemy lines of USA Inc. Now, I did not choose this as one of the stories, but... I was just reminded of it. I should bring it to your attention. I don't know if y'all saw the um, clip. There was a YouTube clip of Minister Louis Farrakhan uh, talking about the 13th Amendment and how they never abolished slavery. And, you know, when I created New Abolitionist Radio, what, six, seven years ago, 
the whole point of this program was to inform people about the 13th Amendment, how slavery was never abolished. This stuff we call a mass incarceration isn't really mass incarceration. It's a continuation of slavery. And, you know, I have to say, you know, I am just happy that it's getting out there now. I've never heard Minister Farrakhan ever talk about the 13th Amendment. So that's the value in what Kanye did in talking about the 13th Amendment in the president's office. All right. And, and Louis Farrakhan talked about that. And, he, and, and as I've stated and others have stated, don't shoot the messenger. Listen to the message. And we had a whole lot of people try to cherry pick what Kanye was saying and, and just dogging them out and blasting on them. And, you know, I can set my feelings aside uh, when it comes to Donald Trump or you know, no MAGA hat doesn't get me in my emotions or, or none of that, I, I, you know, but I can pay attention to what Kanye was saying, you know, and like Minister Farrakhan say, you know, Kanye didn't do the best in explaining it, but he put it on the table. He put it on the table. Why don't you go look up the 13th Amendment and, and then you could see that trap door that he was talking about. So, um, I just I just want to give a shout out to Minister Farrakhan for talking about the fact that slavery was never abolished uh, with the congregants of, I don't know what they call them, congregants or, or what at their mosque, but the people who were, um, who listened to him and look at him as an authority figure. And it's a, let me just say this, it's about time. It's about time that some of these black organizations and leaders start talking about the fact that slavery was never abolished. So I'm very appreciative of that. And he wouldn't have been saying nothing about it if Kanye didn't bring it up. All right. So let me move on. Now, this case just reminded me of another story we reported out of Pennsylvania uh, that I was talking about during the opening of the program where um, you will no longer be able to communicate directly via letters and, and what have you um, with prisoners in, in the, uh, I guess they call it the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections and how when you send them their letters, they're going to open the letters, which we know they do that anyway, but they're going to put it on some kind of computing device. And that's the only way that the prisoners will be able to access their letters. And then also the um, attorneys, um, you know, at the abolitionist law center, which is based in uh, Pennsylvania, were bringing up the issue of client attorney confidential uh, privilege that people shouldn't be listening in. Uh, to our calls when we're trying to, you know, talk to our clients about their case that's under appeal or, or whatever. So this is on the federal level, this particular um, story. And I just want to say this. These aren't isolated incidents. If one set of prosecutors is doing it, it's likely that this is a standard practice across the United States. You know, that that's just me I don't have any evidence of that, you know, to say it's every last single one of them, but it's more than just one or two. So let me uh, read this story that comes to you via Kansas.com. Let me see what time it is. Only got a few more stories. We might get out of here early. Uh, coming up um, later tonight at 10 o'clock p.m. will be a broadcast 
a mind, body, and spirit radio. Uh, the ladies were off last week, and i um, just glad to have them back on air. And by the way, um, if you missed the broadcast of Real Life Radio last night, I was just listening to that track where they was talking about why they call us black and why they call them white. That kind of reminded me of last night's program where on Real Life Radio they were talking about the invention of white people. and what well, it, it, it was a very constructive program. Um, please check out that podcast on Black Talk Radio Network. All right, so let me get to this story. A phone call case frees woman from Kansas prison. A federal judge in Kansas City, Kansas, has ordered a woman's early release from prison after learning that a former prosecutor listened to phone calls between the woman and her lawyer. Because of that, of that I, now I don't understand why they're calling this a possible violation of her constitutional rights. It is a violation. Um, Michelle Roulette was released Monday from the federal prison where she was serving a five-year sentence. She was not scheduled to be released until September of 2020. The revelation of the former prosecutor's actions came earlier this month during a court hearing concerning the recording and dissemination of attorney-client phone calls at the privately run Leavenworth Detention Center. So this is a private prison. Um, and, and if I'm not mistaken, this has been brought up in the past before. Um, which prison is it? I want to say, yeah, it's, it's Core Civic uh, that, that's running Leavenworth right now. All right, so it goes on to say testimony that the former prosecutor who handled Roulette's case had listened to calls prompted her attorneys and the U.S. Attorney's Office to jointly ask that she be resentenced to time served and released. The facts revealed during the hearing hearings were not previously known to the leadership of the U.S. Attorney's Office. U.S. Attorney Stephen McAllister said in a written statement on Monday, in light of those facts and given the relatively short time remaining on Miss Roulette's sentence, well, that's easy for you to say. You ain't the one that got to spend years in prison. Um, we believe the best choice to serve the ends of justice was not to oppose the public defender's motion to amend Miss Roulette's sentence to time served. Roulette, a uh, Texas resident, was prosecuted in Kansas on drug, money laundering, and mail fraud charges. Uh, she pleaded guilty to mail fraud and was sentenced in May 2017 to a five-year prison sentence. Now, what this is not telling me is what happened to the other charges. So the only thing she pled guilty to was mail fraud. Uh, the recording co recorded conversations with her attorney occurred while she was held at the Leavenworth facility, Leavenworth facility run by Core Civic, formerly called the Correction Corporation of America. She is one of potentially dozens of defendants whose cases could be affected by the court case now pending before a federal judge in Kansas City, Kansas. De defense attorneys allege that prosecutors engaged in a widespread practice of obtaining records or recordings of attorney-client phone calls in violation of the client's constitutional rights. My question is, is why are they recording them in the first place? Seems to me that they shouldn't be recording those calls. Don't they have the ability to turn off the machine or something? Now, prosecutors, of course, are disputing that this was a widespread practice, saying that uh, with the exception of what they call a few isolated instances, 
instances such as what happened in Roulette's case. Uh, litigation in the recordings have been going on over the recordings have gone on for years. In 2017, a federal prosecutor left the U.S. Attorney's Office after admitting that she also had listened to recordings of attorney-client phone calls. U.S. District Judge Julie Robinson heard nearly two weeks of testimony this month and has scheduled an additional hearing in November. So that comes to you by way of Kansas com. By the way, all of these stories are linked up in the program uh, description for you uh, for New Abolitionist Radio, October the 24th, uh, 2018. And one of the things that I don't know is if this federal prosecutor who violated this attorney-client privilege by listening to these recording calls or even those who provided them with the recorded costs, which means it would have to been employees of course civic. What, 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 um, what penalty did they face? They didn't fire her. She quit. To me, she should be charged with a crime. If I was the defendant in this case, I would be suing her and the U S the U S government over this. And I don't believe for one minute that, this isn't as widespread as the defense attorneys are alleging. Again, this is a concern that is being raised in Pennsylvania uh, with the Ab- by the Abolitionist Law Center with the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections uh, using a third-party private company to handle the communications um, directed towards prisoners. So... Just um, not justice. This is not justice whatsoever. All right, let me move on to the next story. Let me find it. Uh, let me see. And the next story, this is uh, the last story. No, we got a couple of more stories. This story right here, I had to share this one. Because again, I don't understand every time there's an election, there are those who want to tell people, oh, you just wasting your time voting don't matter. Look, ain't nobody begging you to do something that you don't think that matters. But when you tell me as a person who has been registered to vote and voted in every election since 1998, um, even when I was in the military, I, I did absentee ballots and what have you. And, and you telling me I'm doing, I'm wasting my time and insinuating that I'm foolish. You know, I don't care to hear that. I don't care to hear that. It's not hurting you. So why are you so concerned about people doing something that you say don't matter? But it does matter. Like my mom said to me today, then how did we get out from under some of the horrific uh, uh, oppression that we were going through you know, our ancestors were going through if voting didn't matter. They didn't pass the civil rights bill out of the uh, goodness of their heart. They didn't outlaw uh, discrimination federally out of goodness of their heart. They did it as a way to get votes from the black community. 
But that was during the time when black people was fighting for the right. I mean, they was getting busted in the head and, and harassed by police for registering people to vote. They took it much seriously uh, than people do today, in my opinion. Um, and I, I just tell you, man, but for those that want an example of where voting mattered, here is Exhibit A. California is revising three strike life sentences after ruling. And the state fought against this. Um, up to 4,000 California inmates serving life sentences for nonviolent convictions will have a chance at parole following the state's decision to let stand a judge ruling saying those prisoners are eligible for freedom under a voter-approved law. So, <laughs> I wish I lived in a state where you can get ballot uh, initiatives put on the ballot without needing uh, politicians, you know, that's already in office without having to go through them. I wish it was that way in North Carolina where I could organize a petition and get the required amount of signatures as it is in other states to get something put on the ballot and put before the voters. But that's how it is in California. Voters did this. Okay, just like the, the cannabis legalization laws. Voters did that. The legislators didn't do that. Okay? They didn't they didn't pass a law to do that. No, voters did that in California. And in this case, saying you know, some voters said, some organizers said, you know what? This is not in the interest of justice. Nobody should be sentenced to a lifetime of prison slavery for petty crimes, okay? Uh, especially when they're crimes of survival. So let's get the required amount of signatures on this petition and let's do something about it. Let's change the law. And they did. The state will now craft new regulations by January to include the repeat offenders and early release provisions. Governor Jerry Brown also will not appeal a court ruling that the state is illegally excluding the nonviolent so-called career criminals from parole under the 2016 ballot measure he championed to reduce the prison population and encourage rehabilitation. The state parole board estimates between 3,000 and 4,000 nonviolent third strikers could be affected, corrections department spokeswoman Vicki Waters told the Associated Press, but they would have to go through rigorous public safety screenings and a parole board hearing before any decision is made. It is the second such loss for the Democratic governor who leaves office days after the new rules are due. Another judge ruled in February that the state must consider earlier parole for potentially thousands of sex offenders. The administration is fighting that ruling, which undercuts repeated promises that Brown made to voters to exclude sex offenders from earlier release. The three strikes law was enacted in 1994 and affects people convicted of a serious felony. California law describes the crimes that must be considered a serious felony for the purpose of the street stri three strikes sentencing guidelines. Prosecutors warn throughout the Prop 
57 campaign that third strikers would unintentionally fall under the measures constitutional amendment, said California District Attorney Association spokeswoman Jennifer Jacobs. Brown will not appeal last month's ruling by a three-judge appellate panel in a Los Angeles County case. There is no question that the voters who approved Proposition 57 intended inmates serving three strikes indeterminate sentences to be eligible for parole uh, consideration. The appeal courts rule adding that there is strong evidence the voters who approved Prop 57 sought to provide relief to nonviolent offenders. So the system wanted to keep those people in prison slavery. Remember, you know, Kamala Harris, uh, one of the so-called stars of the Democratic Party who will be running for president argued when she was California's attorney general, hey, we can't, we can't let all these prisoners go to ease overcrowding, uh, which is creating inhumane conditions because what would we do without all of that cheap slave labor? Yes, she argued that. Y'all need to bring that up when she starts campaigning for president. I don't know why it wasn't brought up when she was running for uh, the Senate. And, you know, I guess she was fooling people with that black girl magic propaganda. Oh, just vote for me because I'm black and I'm a woman. Whatever. Man. So, you know, shout out to those people who got Prop 57 put on the ballot. And then shout out to the voters of California for approving Prop 57. All right. So, you know, petty crimes, nonviolent crimes, nobody should be uh, sentenced to life. And how about you rehabilitate them, uh, you know, and give them jobs, training or whatever. You know, it, it's awful funny you use them in California to fight your wildfires. But then when they get out of prison, they can't get a job as a firefighter because they labeled as a felon. So, again, voting does matter. Not saying it matters in terms of um, uh, the CEO of USA Inc. or or even the Senate or the Congress, but I'm still gonna vote because it ain't gonna. It's not gonna be a big deal. It's not gonna be a big loss of my time to research issues, which I'm always researching issues and and trying to keep myself informed about what's going on in my state as well as the nation. Um, but you know, hey. It's no sweat off of my back to go to the polls and vote, uh, okay? So anyway, here is, um, I want to enter into uh, evidence, Exhibit A, of where voting has made a difference to up to 4,000 nonviolent offenders sentenced to life in prison. Prison slavery. Next article, let me move on. This will be the last article, and then I will get into the abolitionist in profile, as well as the writer of the Underground Railroad, which I really, you know, think it should be called the Overground Railroad. This ain't underground. It's out in the open. Um, oh, that was the last story. Yeah, I'm sorry. That was the last story. So let me move into the writer of the Underground Railroad. A team of Georgetown undergraduate students and professors helped exonerate Valentino Dixon, who spent 26 years in prison after being found guilty of murder on September the 19th. So he got out in September. 
three undergraduate students and Professor Mark Howard's spring 2018 Prison Reform Project seminar assisted with the case, unearthing new evidence that led to Dixon's release. Dixon was convicted in 1992 for the murder of Terreno Jackson in Buffalo, New York, and was released September the 19th, 2018, from the Maximum Security Attica Correctional Facility. The Georgetown students made me a believer that anything is possible and that justice can be done, Dixon said in a September 19th news release. The three students who studied the case, Julie uh, Fragonas, uh, Nao, how you pronounce this, Naya Johnson, who both attended Georgetown as part of a study abroad program in Isabella uh, Guntalake, also worked alongside forensic and legal professionals to investigate the case. They produced social media content, a website, and a documentary outlining the details of the case and their findings. Fregano said the work she did on the case changed her perspective on the criminal justice system and the impact she could have. Meeting Valentino and the rest of his family made me understand the power of strength and dedication. Forganos wrote in an email to the Hoya, I think it made me realize the realities of the system. Never will I ever see a prisoner the same from now on. All right, so we want to welcome the freedom, Mr. Valentino Dixon, who spent 26 years in prison for a murder that he did not convict, commit. All right, our abolitionists in profile. Tonight, our abolitionist in profile is Richard Allen. He was born February 14, 1760, and he passed away on March 26, 1831. He was born into slavery uh, on the Delaware property of Benjamin Chu. When he was a child, Allen and his family were sold to Stokely Sturgis, who had a plantation in Delaware. When Sturgis had financial problems, he sold Richard's mother and two of his five siblings. Allen had an older brother and sister left with him, and the three began to attend meetings of the local Methodist society, which was welcoming to victims of slavery and free blacks. They were encouraged by their enslaver Sturgis, although he wasn't a Christian, um, to attend. Richard taught himself to read and write. He joined the Methodists at the age of 17. He began evangelizing and attracted criticism from local slavers. Allen and his brother redoubled their efforts for service so that no one could say that they didn't do well because of religion. The Reverend Freeborn Garrison, who had freed his own victims of slavery in 1775, uh, began to preach in Delaware. He was among many Methodist and Baptist ministers after the American Revolutionary War who encouraged slavers to emancipate their people. When Garrett, Garrettson visited the Stur Sturgis plantation to preach, Allen's uh, enslaver was touched by this declaration and began to give consideration to the thought that hope that enslaving people was sinful. Sturgis was soon convinced that slavery was wrong and offered his victims an opportunity to buy their freedom. I mean, wow, dude, you could have just set them free. Uh, Allen performed, performed extra work to earn the money 
and bought his freedom in 1780 when he changed his name from, and this was his name, Negro Richard to Richard Allen. In 1787, Allen uh, and another individual led black members out of St. George's Methodist Church and they formed the Free African Society, a non-denominational mutual aid society that assisted uh, fugitive victims of slavery and new migrants to the city, new black migrants to the city. I mean, they was doing a lot, man, to help people. Uh, Allen died at home on Spruce Street on March the 26th, 1831. He was buried at the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the church that he founded in Philadelphia. And New Abolitionist Radio salutes our abolitionist ancestor, Richard Allen. All right. That's the end of tonight's broadcast. I want to thank those who, who stopped through. Um, slavery is not going to end itself. It's going to take, like that student said, it's going to take strength. It's going to take dedication. There is nothing that we cannot achieve if we work in solidarity to end slavery. They fooled us the first time, but I think that it's become evidently clear that the United States never abolished slavery. Once um, we recognize that truth and get others um, to recognize that truth, then perhaps one day soon, hopefully in my lifetime, that we can bring an end to legalized slavery and human trafficking in the United States and all the tentacles, um, you know, that's impacting people in their everyday lives. Um, do want to remind you again, if you are in Colorado, you're a registered voter, please vote yes on Amendment A. That is to remove the slavery as punishment for crime exception clause uh, in their constitution because uh, there should be no exceptions for slavery whatsoever, period. With that said, peace and blessings to all. Y'all be safe out there uh, until next week. Lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes.